Hey, Curbsiders, this is Dr. Carolyn Chan, and I'm excited to announce a new mini series, The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. We have 11 great episodes for you where we cover core addiction med topics tailored to the general internist, and we will be releasing these weekly episodes starting in July. I'll be joined by my co hosts, Dr. Sean Cohen, Dr. Kenny Morford, and Dr. Natalie Stahl. We believe it's important as ever for internists to play a key role in providing evidence based addiction treatment. So, be sure to tune in this summer wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more by checking out our website at thecurbsiders.com or email us at curbsidersaddictionmed at gmail.com. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. This is Paul Williams. I am here at ACP 2022 with my excellent colleagues, Dr. Nora Toronto, Dr. Molly Hoidlein, and Dr. Chris the Chuman Chu, who is off mic. Um, we had an excellent episode. Wado is elsewhere. Um, the less said, the better, but we're going to muddle through without him. But on tonight's show, we have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Christian Cable about uh, these immune checkpoint inhibitors and their role in medicine and the potential things that can go wrong with them. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. Um, but before we do that, I'm going to completely throw her off and ask Nora to tell us what exactly it is that we do here. Sure, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> we are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Great. And then uh, further complicating things, why don't I ask you, uh, Dr. Wiley Hoodline, to tell us about our guest uh, and a little bit about what we talked about today. Sure. We had a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Christian Cable. Dr. Cable is a hematologist oncologist at Baylor Scott and White in Temple, Texas, where he serves as the Baylor College of Medicine Associate Dean for Admissions and Students, and previously served as the Hematology Oncology Fellowship Director and GME Director. He loves to learn and teach hematology and is a frequent speaker for the American College of Physicians and serves on the 2022 and 2024 ACP Scientific Program Committee. Christian is the MixApp 20 hematology section editor. He and his wife, Jill, are fierce double pickleball players. So on this episode, we talk about pickleball and, <laughs> uh, and immune checkpoint inhibitors. And Dr. Cable talks to us about how these medications ramp up the immune system to try to beat cancer cells. And in the meantime, that can also cause other autoimmune complications, uh, specifically endocrine and um, rheumatologic side effects and can kind of help us talk. He talks through with us how to look out for those and first steps on how to address those. Before we get to it, anyone have any puns they want to share with us? No, excellent. Perfect. Then on with the show. Christian, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Um, we are here at ACP 2022. The astute listener may hear just spirited blues music playing in the background, um, unless we manage to fix that in post. Uh, so fingers crossed. I'm, of course, joined by Nora Toronto and Molly Hoyblein. Hey, guys. How are you? Hello. And we are, of course, joined by Christian, who's going to tell us all about checkpoint inhibitors. But before we get into that, Christian, can you give us a one-liner to describe yourself? Yes. Um, I am a chronic nerd who loves to learn and teach. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Broad. Short and sweet. Yeah. 
And can you give us one hobby that you like to do outside of learning and teaching? Yes, I have a chainsaw named Rachel the Fourth, and we have been clearing land behind the house. Oh, amazing. To what end? Just to make it prettier, or is something going to happen? So we're hoping to develop it into a ranch for special needs adults. Oh, incredible. Yeah. Awesome. How much land clearing do you have to do to so do that? So in, in Texas, it would be called a ranchito, okay. but it's, <laughs> it's 125 acres behind wow. our, find okay. our place. So okay. I find joy working on the land. And I have, I feel like I have to ask this. Was there a Rachel the third, the second, the of, first? Of course. Just making sure. Of course. Sure. Of course. Okay. So okay. these are Rachel the third and Rachel the fourth were commercial chainsaws. And Rachel the third had to have a heart transplant. So, mm. but she's back working as well. And I'm Rachel the fourth just felled a dead tree. And we're looking for productive ways to reclaim the lumber. Nice. That's tremendous. What is your favorite failure? Oh, geez, had? right into it. All right, <laughs> right into it. So I once walked. Um, I once walked 14 miles to avoid walking 13. Hmm. I was ascending Pikes Peak, and I got high altitude sickness, maybe even pulmonary edema, at about seven miles up. So instead of making a 13-mile trip up and taking the train down, I had to turn around at seven miles and go right back. Mm. And it's real. When you descend, you start feeling better. But between six and seven miles in, I could only walk about 20 yards without getting dysmic. So that was a failure, but I didn't end up in the hospital. So I guess it was a good one. Not a total failure. Not a total yes. failure. That's right. <laughs> Um, I know we're just starting out the conference here, but are there kind of things that you're most excited about here at ACP or things that you really love about these in-person conferences? So Molly, you're right. This is this is the first in-person conference I've been to in two years. And so I don't really mind the music in the background. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we can't take it out in post, but everybody is just so happy to see people. I'm going to be looking for my Hemonk peeps. I mean, I love, I love hearing new things and hearing new teachers. And then I also went to the board review. So I'm, I just hit my second recertification. I'm taking the easy way out and doing the longitudinal knowledge assessment, but I know more about internal medicine than I knew on Sunday. So that's good. Excellent. All right. Well, I don't want to deprive you of the opportunity to tell us about a let's go favorite book, unless there's another piece of culture that you'd like to share with us. So Anna Karenina, I'll share the opening line. It's the best part. It's like all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Oh, that's beautiful. It's a beautiful book. Yeah. Yeah. Southern California Permanente Medical Group is actively seeking outpatient internal medicine physicians to join their clinics throughout Southern California. As a physician-led partnership organization with a patient-centered and evidence-based approach to high-quality medicine, they offer a fulfilling practice where you will benefit from backup support, no overnight call, flexible scheduling, and work-life balance. Join them and enjoy a practice free from the hassles of running an office, developing a patient base, prior authorizations, and insurance billing. Potential teaching opportunities and blended outpatient-inpatient roles may also be available. What makes SCPMG unique? It's physician-led, patient-centered, evidence-based, team-delivered, technology-enabled, culturally responsive, and has generous benefits. With dozens of prime Southern California locations from Bakersfield to Los Angeles to San Diego, SCPMG has a career destination that's right for you. 
Famous worldwide for its wonderful Mediterranean climate and incredible variety of activities and attractions, Southern California is an amazing place to live, work, and play. Want to make a difference in a community that appreciates your passion and expertise? Then join SCPMG as an outpatient internal medicine physician. Learn more or apply at scpmgphysiciancareers.com or call 866-449-1684. All right. Well, with that and me showing how uncultured I am, why don't we actually move on to a case and let's, let's get to the meat of this talk. So, Nora, why don't you talk us through our first patient so we can learn a little bit about Awesome. So to start, we have Mark. Mark is a 65-year-old male with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, BPH, and a new diagnosis of metastatic melanoma. He is met to the liver and the lung in particular. He's established care with an oncologist already, um, and he's actually about to start a new medication for treatment of the melanoma called nivolumab. Um, and you're his primary care doctor, so uh, he wants to discuss the medication with you prior to starting it, um, since he trusts your opinion and, and doesn't know too much about it. Um, and so just to take a step back for a moment, yeah. um, nivolumab is is under the class of immunotherapy that we're hearing more and more about. What exactly is immunotherapy? So immunotherapy, it's, it's got a long history. The last 10 years have been fascinating. But in essence, it's trying to turn on the immune system to recognize cancer. I think that it's intuitive to recognize the immune system and its defense against infection. But a lesser known function is to, to call out early cancers. And it all happens behind the background, behind the scenes, you just don't know it. And so immunotherapy is a way to manipulate the immune system in our patient Mark's case to recognize his melanoma as cancer and to actually attack the cancer, and hopefully not the normal parts of Mark, which is that's some of the mischief you can get into with checkpoint inhibitors. But immunotherapy in general is very attractive to both patients and physicians because the side effects are certainly different and usually less severe than traditional chemotherapy. So people don't lose their hair. There's not severe nausea and vomiting. There's not the same susceptibility to sepsis. But in general, I think I would explain it just saying you're trying to get the immune system to take care of the cancer, to use the body's natural defenses to get rid of cancer, even, even in an advanced state like our patient Mark. That sounds a little bit like the, the spiel that you sort of give to patients about these medications. Now, let's pretend I remember some of my immunology, but not yeah. a ton. And if yeah. you're sort of advanced, this is to talking to just the internist in terms of how these medications work specifically. Like, can you just talk <laughs> me through, maybe not too specifically, because again, I'll just right, sort of right. nod and look off in the middle distance, but, yeah. um, but sort of broadly, how, what, what sort of targets these go after and how do they actually function? So this is where it gets really fun because I think we're at a time where the phenomenon is leading the pathophysiology. So the honest answer of how exactly does it work is, I don't know. And I think that um, one of the first immunotherapies was a surgeon named Coley in the 1890s. And he did some, am I allowed to say that surgeons can be crazy on this podcast? <laughs> I don't think an internist would have done this. I think if they're from the 1800s. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also probably not listening. Different so age. Safe, yeah. so okay, maybe not, but safe. Yeah. I don't, you know. So Coley had an idea 
that giving bacterial toxins, and thankfully he killed the bacteria first because it was Streptopyogenes and Serratia marcescens, he would give them to people trying to treat cancer. He actually tried, the first case he tried was sarcoma. He worked with Dr. Ewing. They were at the same hospital. And what happened is occasionally a patient would respond and the tumor would shrink. Uniformly, people don't like getting bacterial toxins intravenously. <laughs> so everybody got sick and occasionally somebody got better. And that went on until 1963. You could buy Coley's toxins until the FDA, after thalidomide, started mm-hmm. tightening down how we approved drugs in the United States. So the next thing with immunotherapy, which is really cool, is the radiation oncologists noticed that if you would irradiate one tumor, and that's really after surgery, that's the first, that's the second anti-cancer treatment was radiotherapy. Mm-hmm. You could radiate a tumor, and I think the case was actually melanoma, a very immune active tumor, and a metastasis would shrink. And so the physician that wrote up the case actually made up the word abscopal. And so the abscopal effect was I treat radiation therapy to a primary and distant from the radiation, the metastasis gets better. So that was immunotherapy Mm. because essentially what you were doing was exposing new antigens, damaging the primary by radiotherapy, and stimulating the immune system to attack the Met. I just got so excited. (laughs) That's incredible. Then there are, we're all familiar with bone marrow transplant. Mm -hmm. That started in the 1950s in a way as as a response to how to treat radiation poisoning from World War II. Mm -hmm. And the first six patients with allogeneic transplant published in the New England Journal, 1957, they all died in the first 100 days because HLA typing wasn't discovered until 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Incredible. And that was adoptive immunotherapy, where it became clear that the reason leukemias could be cured with an allogeneic transplant is that you adopted somebody else's T cells, and those T cells recognized your leukemia as foreign. So it really was the self, non-self. You fast forward the 1980s, there was, and there's a series of Time Magazine covers, The Cure for Cancer. One of Mm -hmm. them was interferon. Mm -hmm. I call interferon influenza in a jar. So I I had the misfortune as a fellow, Nora, you won't. Mm -hmm. I had the misfortune as a fellow to prescribe interferon. One of the things you had to look out for actually was depression to the point of suicide. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's real. Mm -hmm. And then when I was a fellow late 90s, early 2000s, sepsis in a jar, interleukin-2. And that's what we used to give for melanoma. So for me, seeing the melanoma story Mm -hmm. as the leading edge of immunotherapy, comparing it to giving people high-dose interleukin-2, which you really had to do in an intensive care unit with vasopressors and everything that could go wrong did. And what you were shooting for was about 5% of people would be Mm long-term survivors. So it's interesting. How does a checkpoint inhibitor work? The first one was called CTLA-4. Mm-hmm. C, 
C toxic, cytotoxic lymphocyte antigen 4 inhibitor, and it is essentially inhibiting the T cell from shutting down. So it keeps a T cell active. Mm-hmm. Program death, PD, or program death ligand, similar. They're auto control mechanisms for T cells. Mm-hmm. So they're in essence keeping T cells active, but what happens after that? It's like tipping off the dominoes. I, I think it's just a it's a Venn diagram in a black box. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Because there are now 10, maybe 20 different types of T cells described. There's a crosstalk between T cells and B cells. So this whole cell mediated versus humoral is probably too simplistic. Mm-hmm. So in essence, we know that you wake up the immune system and then in a substantial number of patients across a very broad number of diseases, it does better than chemotherapy mm-hmm. in long-term survival and in a few probably cure. Mm-hmm. What are the common cancers that we will see these these yeah. being prescribed for. So I think the way to think about that, Nora, is think about what are the common cancers. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about lung, prostate, breast cancer, colorectal cancer. Lung cancer is where you're going to see it the most mm-hmm. because lung cancer, it has indications now in small cell and non-small cell. With non-small cell lung cancer, we were always looking for people with so-called druggable mutations like EGFR or ROS1. Mm-hmm. They would have tyrosine kinase inhibitor pills, a broad number of patients beyond that are going to be eligible to receive a checkpoint inhibitor, usually a PD-1 inhibitor in combination with chemotherapy. I would say lung is number one. Prostate cancer, not yet, but the research is happening. Prostate cancer, the advances have been more in ways to manipulate the hormonal system. With colon cancer, and this is another interesting thing, It's colon cancers that have high microsatellite instability. And so high MSI, which is a way to categorize colon cancer, essentially shows you more antigenic variation. And that kind of fits with the neoantigen and recognizing that theme. And then finally, with breast cancer, it's in the type of breast cancer that needed it the most, and that's triple negative breast cancer. So you don't have... You don't have estrogen as a target. You don't have HER2 new as a target. Triple negative has been a bad actor, and that's where immunotherapies are. You'll see it less commonly, but very importantly, in Hodgkin lymphoma, in non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I just say less commonly because those are less common diseases. Mm-hmm. But I would say that the practicing internist is going to see this in lung cancer. And then let's not forget melanoma. melanoma, there's even a categorization of non-melanoma skin cancers, which don't even make the charts. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, melanoma can metastasize anywhere, any when. It's one of the ones that can metastasize 20 years after the primary. It's one of the ones that can go to the heart, the brain, anywhere. And melanoma and renal cell, which both have active indications have long been understood as immunologically active tumors. So we know renal cell carcinoma, Stouffer's syndrome, it's the internist tumor. So I think it's getting easier, Nora, to tell you the cancers where it's not going to be used. 
Well, that's so exciting that it's now available for our patients and, and such a fascinating history of how we got to this place. What does it actually look like for patients? Like what, what kind of experience do they have receiving these treatments? So Molly, it's very different than traditional chemotherapy. Um, and it's even different than, than more common monoclonal therapies. So I kind of grew up in the days when rituxan was coming, rituximab was coming of age, and infusion reactions were very common. I mean, it was a murine antibody, and I used to tell patients that your body doesn't like Mickey Mouse running around in your veins, and so you're going to get some fevers and chills and the shake and the bake, and the first is the worst. That was the spiel. We don't really have that spiel with the checkpoint inhibitors, so the infusion reactions are less common. They're not emetogenic, so there's no real immediate effect. It tends to be pretty anticlimactic. And so really where we focus most of our counseling is if it were combined with chemotherapy, which is common in lung cancer, we focus on the, the nausea prevention from that and all of the normal things, watching for fever and what is our emergency plan. If it's only immunotherapy, then the counseling really is, okay, if you're going to wake up your immune system, what we hope happens is it recognizes the tumor what we hope doesn't happen, but we're very much watching for it, is autoimmune. And so with the patient, I just talk about hypothyroidism, which is a common autoimmune condition that most people understand. And then in general, I talk about inflammation. And that, that's how I think about the side effects of the checkpoint inhibitors. The good thing we want to inflame is the cancer. I mean, that can lead to long-term disease control, even cure the bad thing I want to inflame is anything else. Mm-hmm. And, and it can inflame almost anything else. Just to name the different uh, categories. So we have PD-1 inhibitors, we have PDL one inhibitors, and then right. we have CTLA-4 inhibitors. What are the just couple common medications that we would hear and which class do they fit in? So to my knowledge, there's only one in the CT, CTL a four inhibitors, mm-hmm. that's ipilimumab. So it was one of the first, and it's the only in class. The way that I came to know this medicine is we actually had a patient, I practice in Central Texas, and our quaternary referral center would be MD Anderson. There was a patient on clinical trial with metastatic melanoma who presented with hypophysitis to our hospital, and it's a very unusual diagnosis to see somebody pan-hypopit. And I was consulted because our team, because they were on a clinical trial, and there's this letter and a number, and it wasn't even named ipilimumab yet, and I had no idea. So that was my first exposure. And still hypophysitis, up to 5% of patients with CTLA-4 inhibitors. The more common class is program death PD-1 or program death ligand 1, which I think would be a good name for a metal band. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. So yeah. true. So those are, those are the same class. Those are the same set of side effects, and those are much more commonly used. So the paradigm would be nivolumab, pembrolizumab, and there's several others in that class as well. So essentially ipilimumab, nivolumab, Pembrolizumab, one is a single class, and the other two representing a class effect for PD-1 and PDL one 
exciting to have these medications, um, exciting to have the capacity to treat things that we hadn't been able to treat well before. But of course, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about things going south. Nora, tell us a little bit more, more about Mark and his course with the nivolumab. Great. So Mark, yeah, beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, let's just pause and acknowledge the fact that <laughs> yeah, no, almost, it, almost felt natural. It, it used to be that the, that the competency of an oncologist <laughs> was to manage drugs with narrow therapeutic indices. It's not true anymore. Now it's pronouncing the names of the meds. Yeah, with confidence, I feel yeah. like has to probably be part yeah. of it, too. Yeah, yeah you yeah. can't have that question mark like I have at the end of the sentence, so I would make a lousy oncologist. <laughs> doesn't matter how you actually say it, just the confidence <laughs> yeah, is really right. key. That's true of most yeah. medicine, really. Um, so Mark is reassured by your spiel about the nivolumab. Um, he starts it, and his melanoma actually responds really nicely. Um, he, two months later, comes to you with a couple new complaints. He says that he can't taste food the same or really chew as well because he feels like his mouth is dry, which has not been an issue for him. Um, he also says his eyes are a little more irritated than they used to be. They feel kind of gritty and dry. Um, and so uh, you've already begun to talk about these immune-related adverse events, or IRAEs, um, you'll sometimes see the acronym for. Um, what are common autoimmune conditions that, that occur in patients like this, like Mark? And what do you think is going on? Okay. So let's talk about Mark specifically, and then we'll expand out. So in a patient on immunotherapy that presents with dry mouth and dry eyes, it's a Sicka syndrome, and it is related to Sjogren's, but not the same. And I think that's the general theme is that you can pretty much get any rheumatologic autoimmune disorder with the exception of systemic lupus that hasn't been reported, but you can get pretty much any of them. So, however, they're a little different. So the Sicka syndrome tends to be... Um, Lack of saliva is more prominent than lack of tears, and the autoantibodies tend to not be positive. Mm -hmm. Just other rheumatologic disorders, inflammatory arthritis, it can do a great imitation of rheumatoid arthritis or the spondyloarthropathies, however, less likely to be seropositive. So RA, CCP, less likely to be positive, HLA-B27, less likely to be positive, but the syndrome is the same. So that's the triad that I'm really excited about, that we've got Dr. Capelli, who's speaking about the rheumatologic manifestations. We've got Dr. Eck speaking about the endocrine manifestations. And the endocrine manifestations are the most common. So I would say the ones we have to look out for are hypothyroidism, hyperthyroidism, and this is really one of the first time as an oncologist I'm thinking about the adrenal glands mm -hmm. outside of the context of I give a lot of steroids and I need to think about secondary adrenal insufficiency. So pretty much you run through the rheumatologic syndromes and there will be a correlate with the immune checkpoint inhibitor toxicity. There are some distinctions and differences. They tend to have less seropositivity and there's some interesting associations like myositis. Um, dermatis myositis is actually rare with the checkpoint inhibitors, but polymyositis can indeed happen. It's going to present the same way clinically. I've got sore muscles. I've got proximal muscle weakness. I've got high CKs, even rhabdo level high CKs. 
And then the weird association, the dangerous association, is it can be associated with myositis, with cardiac myositis, so mm-hmm. cardiac involvement, or even encephalitis. Do these tend to segregate out cleanly? Like in the absence of positive serologies, like do you typically see a just the symptoms that are consistent with sicko and they don't have the inflammatory arthritis, or, or can you see sort of a mixed picture? Because it's just it's so interesting that they would mimic these rheumatologic. Uh, conditions um, in the absence of positive serology. So do these things really sort of, are they this discrete in, in your clinical experience or is there overlap that you see sometimes? So the truth is, I don't know. The truth is, I don't know. It's, um, as I've read about it, it seems to be more clean than the mm-hmm. real world of overlap disorders. Mm-hmm. And there are less extra articular problems mm-hmm. described. So my intuition tells me you're right. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I guess with the exception of the myositis, which comes with this potential host of myasthenia, myocarditis, kind of that. And that is, it's rare but serious, Yeah. right? So it's still, it's still uncommon, but I think what I'm learning, what we're learning as consultants and as primary physicians is that these are whole new classes of side effects. I mean, I didn't, I didn't like giving adriamycin or cisplatin, but the side effects were predictable. They were stereotypical. You knew how you knew what to look out for. Mm-hmm. You knew in a patient receiving cisplatin that you needed to pay attention to magnesium if their if their potassium was low. Mm-hmm. This is a brave new world, and so I, I think what I do. Well, I know what I do is I ask for help. Mm-hmm. Just good advice for everyone, yes. <laughs> um, do you tend to see these side effects early on after starting treatment, or is this something that's more of a cumulative dose toxicity that you see over time? Yeah, that's a great question. So the earliest one would be dermatitis. The earliest one is going to be a rash, an inflammatory rash. And then probably after that would be hypothyroidism. Mm-hmm. But the timing tends to be three weeks to a few months. Now, the interesting thing is, even when somebody has completed a course of therapy, because not all of them are given indefinitely, it can happen years later. So it's one of the ones where I keep in my progress or my problem list, patient has received immunotherapy Mm -hmm. because it would change my pretest probability considering future autoimmune diseases. So most of the time, it's going to be within weeks to a few months. However, you can't cross it off the list, even if it was two years back that they had their last dose. And are these common enough that you're checking routine labs, like, say, thyroid panels every few weeks with early treatment or just monitoring symptoms? Yes. No, you're right. So that's been new for us. So um, new in a couple ways. First of all, the endocrinologist reminds me that we tend to be diurnal, and so they like morning labs. So... This is new for me. I never really cared when somebody got their pre-chemo labs, just get it at the most convenient place mm-hmm. for you. So at 0800, maybe 0755 if you're feeling spicy, <laughs> you need to check the cortisol. You need to check both the TSH and T4 because TSH as a screen itself is insufficient because it could be central. It could be hypothesitis. Electrolytes and a glucose, so I can probably justify a CMP because I also get the liver enzymes Mm -hmm. as well, and hepatitis as a possible. So 
the additional ones, the thyroid studies, the cortisol, that's new for me checking a CMP and a CBC are pretty routine. Mm -hmm. Are you checking autoantibodies in anyone? No. Okay. I am not. Okay. <laughs> no, because I wouldn't know what to do if I found them. That's that's how I feel. That's right. Okay. Yes. Don't don't check a lab unless you have a plan for the result. Yeah. I do want to go back. I, I love the the point about sort of asking for help. I would love to know exactly what that help looks like. I feel like again, as as me as sort of a very broad thinking primary care doctor, if someone is on any kind of therapy for cancer and then they come to me with a sort of new symptom, I'm like, it's probably the treatment, and that's kind of as, as far as I go. But for these types of things, they feel fairly specific. I guess. This is my long-winded way of asking, do you typically have these patients see rheumatology when they manifest these symptoms, or what does that help look like for you? For sure. So, Paul, first of all, I would say that if, if we had a patient together that was going through this therapy, I hope you would call me and say, hey, Christian, what hell hath you wrought? Sure. Right? right? Just very accusatorily, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so that, I think, the communication, and we were chatting just before we started, one of the reasons I love being an oncologist is for a season of time, I do want them to call me first. I mean, however, I know that if they can't get us and they trust their primary doc, it could, it could come to either of us. So I do think that the prescribing physician, the oncologist, is responsible for tight communication with the internist or the family physician and may serve as a reasonable quarterback to kind of consult out but I would absolutely ask for help for endo. I mean, I know how to start a lot of stuff, but I don't know exactly how to stop it or how to adjust it. And my eyes get blurry when I look at all those antithyroid tests, so mm -hmm. I'm not going to order them. So I do think when you have, you're going to have to take first action. I mean, we can all diagnose hypothyroidism and begin therapy. However, I think co-management with an endocrinologist for this is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. Mm -hmm. And as far as rheumatology, I mean, it's really hard to get anybody into rheumatology in general, but I would make a phone call for this patient. And we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, the different endocrine conditions, but not, not in a ton of detail yet. So yeah. we've kind of gone through the, the common rheumatologic mm -hmm. conditions, but what are the common endocrine conditions? So... Right. The most common is hypothyroidism, and hyperthyroidism, of course, can happen as well, but it tends to be subclinical and not really presenting with storm. Mm -hmm. um, it can happen as well, but hypothyroidism is the main one you're looking for. Diabetes can happen. It's uncommon, and this is interesting. The A1C doesn't really help us because the onset of diabetes tends to be sudden can even present when it does happen with DKA about 70% of the time. I don't really think there's a way to screen for that. My checking glucose every six weeks isn't going to help. Mm -hmm. So I think being aware and just talking about the poly symptoms and just really we want to know when something changes, that's the way I would deal with that. The hypoadrenalism, um, that is actually more common than diabetes. Uh, there was, Dr. Eck shares a case that I thought was great in a patient that was on a checkpoint inhibitor in combination with chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. So that would be common in breast cancer and in lung cancer. I mean, we give out dexamethasone like a Pez dispenser mm -hmm. to prevent nausea. And so she has a great case that you're checking your lab and, oh, no, the morning cortisol is really low. And it turned out it was being suppressed by the dex. Mm -hmm. 
So that's another caveat that I would say that, that my partners, we need to recognize is not only the 8 a.m. lab is kind of new, the specificity mm-hmm. of that, but making sure you do it before you start the antiemetic prep with dexamethasone would help prevent some false positives there. Are most of these conditions permanent or they are temporary? That's a good question. So we'll just go in reverse order. The endocrine disorders are the ones that don't tend to get better. So would I change, would I trade hypothyroidism for 20% chance of being cured from metastatic melanoma? You bet. I'll take Synthroid all day. <laughs> but the endocrine disorders are the ones that do not tend to get better. Dermatitis gets better. Um, the colitis, which can mimic inflammatory bowel disease, gets better, doesn't persist like inflammatory disease. So most of them get better with the exception of endocrine. Of course, vitiligo is going to cause cause what it causes. Mm-hmm. But most of the time, if you stop the checkpoint inhibitor and um, treat it, and we can segue now, like what are the most common treatments for it? Mm-hmm. First thing is you stop. And the second thing is just as you would think of just the, the utility tool for autoimmune disease, steroids. Mm-hmm. And the doses can range anywhere from modest 20 milligrams a day to enormous, a gram of solumedrol for people in neurologic crisis or cardiac myositis crisis. And I guess that, that actually touches on something I wanted to ask about in terms of does... And I recognize these are new agents and these complications are are relatively uncommon, but does background risk affect the potential for for risk of side effects? So specifically for diabetes, if you have a family history or say you're pre-diabetic before and then you start these medications, um, does that increase your risk for diabetes? Or or if you have a history of autoimmune disease in your family or even personal history, does that increase your risk for these, these complications? It is a great question that was not answered by the clinical trials since people, at least with personal history of autoimmune disease, were excluded. So what's happening now really with phase four is you're getting people where you can use it and observe and look back. Um, Personal history of diabetes or family history of diabetes, to the best of my knowledge, was not an exclusion Mm -hmm. and does not affect the onset of diabetes, which is still thankfully pretty rare Mm -hmm. as a side effect. And... If somebody has a background or family history of autoimmunity, can you do it or not? A lot of it, I think, is a risk benefit. Like, mm-hmm. how bad is the autoimmune disease? Are you talking about I'm hypothyroid mm-hmm. or I've got wicked RA? Mm-hmm. Which one is it? And then of what benefit is the anti-cancer therapy? Mm-hmm. Are we talking adjuvant setting where it's not required? Mm-hmm. Or this really is the best option for symptomatic metastatic disease. Mm -hmm. So I'm hoping that if we had this talk again 10 years from now, we'd know more. Are there any conditions that would be absolute contraindications to using these agents? It sounds to me like it's really a kind of risk-benefit analysis, even with autoimmune disease, but I'm curious. As far as healthy people go, people can and do give checkpoint inhibitors to healthy people in their 90s. The challenge that I have that's not very well addressed yet is that I don't think we've changed the rule about functional status. Mm -hmm. So if there's a healthy elder, that's very different 
from a middle-aged person with a performance status of three and four. Mm -hmm. So I feel that performance status four, which is essentially Mm bed-bound because of your disease, and that's where we'll often meet people in the hospital, performance status three, performance status four. I don't think that immunotherapy is the magic key out of that. Mm -hmm. And I think, unfortunately, we push it, and families and patients want us to push it, Because, of course, somebody wants something that can turn that around. But being bed-bound from your cancer, I would consider as an absolute contraindication to immunotherapy. Can I attempt? I'm going to try and pull a Wado and recap a little bit. And you guys will (laughs) let me know how I do. I don't... don't I don't have the, the same confidence that that guy has. So in terms of these immune-related adverse events, so things that could potentially happen, I, I'm sort of in my mind dividing them between sort of rheumatologic and, and endocrinopathies, though obviously there, there's probably a little bit of overlap there. In terms of the rheumatologic, these tend to be sort of seronegative regardless of what we're talking about. Um, but otherwise, for all the world, look like things like sicca, inflammatory arthritis, and then sort of the spectrum of myositis complications on the rheumatologic side of things. And it sounds like you treat all those things the same way that you would treat them. Were they seropositive? Where it's, I mean, obviously you would get help from a rheumatologist is the big thing, and we'd be talking with the oncologist the entire time. But also um, steroids for 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 everything because um, they make everything better. And then from the endocrinopathy side of things, it sounds like the the more common one to be concerned about specifically is is thyroid dysfunction, specifically hypothyroidism, uh, adrenal insufficiency, and then less commonly diabetes. Though that is something that we should be mindful of. Um, and again, it sounds like you manage those in kind of the same way that you would manage them, even in the absence of the, the checkpoint inhibitors, but you would probably stop the agents if they were significant enough um, and, then, and then treat appropriately. And it sounds like the endocrine complications are less likely to go away um, after they manifest themselves. Is that all accurate and correct? It is. Okay. Terrific. It is. The, the thing I'll add is that if we go outside of the categories of endocrine and rheumatologic, If you think about an organ, it can be inflamed. So pneumonitis doesn't fit in either of those categories. Hepatitis doesn't really fit in either of those categories. But I just remember remember the old programming string. You would do star dot something. Yes. (laughs) Star dot inflamed. Star dot itis. (laughs) So this is a star dot itis. You can get an itis of anything. And I'm assuming we... Treat those all. Except for diabetes, which sounds like we do like not treat not... diabetes with steroids, Great. doctor. Yes, I Great. agree. Perfect. I see, we don't need you are ready for fellowship. Ready. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenens either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or maybe even 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It is simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locum's trends for your specialty, compare different locum's agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locum's is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like, what is locum tenens? To more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have firsthand locums experience. Locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. 
All right. I guess the other question I would have is if, if any of these potential side effects manifest themselves and the patient is forced to stop their medication, I'm sure a question they might have is can they restart it or they start a different agent? Or how do you manage things moving forward? That's a good question, and, and people do ask. So if you switch classes of medication, so go from a CTLA-4 inhibitor to a PDL one or PD inhibitor, there's only a 5% chance of having a recurrence of autoimmune symptoms. It's pretty modest. If you stay in class, it's a 50-50 chance. And most of the time, we don't restart. Most of the time, you don't have either class as options for indication. There's many more op- option or many more indications for PD-1. And the interesting thing is that it turns out in the clinical trials, the patients who had immune complications did as well as those who didn't, and they didn't restart. So it may be that there was enough of an immune response, enough of an anti-tumor response that they got the benefit. So I would say restarting angels fear to tread. It doesn't happen very often. You would be influenced by how severe how severe the side effect was and how severe the cancer is. And if patients get the side effect and stop, it looks like they accrue the same benefit as those on the clinical trials who were able to continue. And so along those lines, um, do you ever uh, have to answer the question of whether disease is going to be better treated, like cancer is going to be better treated because or in the patients that are having those side effects more? It must be working because I feel terrible. Right, exactly. That's right. Exactly. That's right. I mean, people are very suspicious of a low toxicity therapy, right? That's not the way oncology is, mm-hmm. is supposed to work. Um, and people do ask that. It's So the interesting thing is you do not, and I think a great thing, is you do not need to have an immune-related side effect to have the benefit of the drug. That's great news. So it's different from lung cancer when the EGFR inhibitors, about 20% of lung cancer has a targetable mutation that you can treat with a TKI. And these are the only people you'll ever meet in your life that are happy to have acne because the acneiform rash of an EGFR inhibitor is absolutely correlated with better outcomes and better survival. So it's not the same here. The one exception, which actually makes sense, it makes a lot of sense, is that in treating melanoma, if a patient develops vitiligo, an autoimmune attack on the melanocytes, they do better. So these would be the only people on earth that would be content to say, I will take the vitiligo. Thank you. And when patients are doing well and you've seen a clinical response or a radiographic response, um, how long do they typically continue on treatment? So if it's being used for metastatic disease, it's essentially you continue on either to intolerance or disease progression. So you may have patients who have been on checkpoint inhibitors for years. And do you have just a general sense of response rates? Well, and that's okay. I think no, no, it's fair because it's variable. I'm sure, but it's variable, and I think we also have to just be realistic about oncologists are not the hardest people in the world to excite. Yeah, but these are exciting. I mean, they're 
with melanoma, which has the most mature data, with real metastatic melanoma, about 20% of people will be cured. And that is compared to maybe 1% to folks who were known to have spontaneous remissions, likely immune-related. So it's not great. It still means that 8 out of 10 people have died in 10 years. But a 1 out of 5 chance is very different than a 1 out of 100 chance. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I feel like we maybe should have asked this uh, a little while ago, but are there any risk factors for developing these side effects um, that you screen for or ask patients about? Uh, sounds like not like a diabetes family history, not necessarily. Did we talk about about all of this? Well, it's an interesting question. I I would say that active autoimmune disease, angels fear to tread. And I would get help and look deeper. But people have also been saying, well, why do some people react this way and others? And there's one that's just kind of a hand-waving. It's your genetics. That's my (laughs) genetics. But the one that's cool is people are starting to look at the, um, the gut microbiome. And I thought that's, that's pretty amazing because the gut microbiome, there's a lot going on there. And is it immune related? Probably. How? I have no idea. But I think that's, it's certainly not prime time, but that's fascinating to me. Yeah. No, in that Nedjim piece, they, they referred to having, uh, I'm going to totally butcher the name of this, bacterioidetes phylum, uh, and having uh, higher rates of that was associated with reduced rates of IPI-related colitis. Um, so very interesting. De- it sounds like not ready for prime time. <laughs> so no fecal a, transplants. Yeah, right? no yeah. Fecal, yeah exactly. Off, Just Off-target off comment. There's a book called <laughs> We Contain Multitudes oh, yeah. about the microbiome, which is fascinating. It's like, I don't think they're going to school, stool transplants, but it's, um, <laughs> there's a lot there. Yeah, it's, it's, cool. it's so interesting. Yeah. And the microbiome everywhere that we're sort of now starting to recognize that exists. But yeah, that's a, a different episode probably. <laughs> Sorry, it took us on a <laughs> wild tangent here. <laughs> yeah, tangent. Tangent. <laughs> yeah, you know. So, so obviously we're very excited about uh, checkpoint inhibitors already. In terms of immunotherapy places we're going, kind of what are you excited about coming down the pipeline right now? So there's something I'm excited about that is now, and there's something I'm excited about, which I think is coming. My practice was autologous transplant. And so in essence, you take out, you just do apheresis, you take out GCSF mobilized stem cells, and then you just put them in the freezer, give a huge old dose of chemotherapy, and give them back. All you're really doing is pushing the chemotherapy response dose past what the marrow can tolerate, and then you're just rescuing the marrow. The new kid on the block is something called CAR T-cells, and CAR stands for chimeric antigen receptor, where you essentially do the same process. You take out the stem cells, separate the T-cells, and then a chimera, I don't know, like a liger or something Mm -hmm. like that, you, (laughs) you put a receptor, an antibody receptor on a T cell that does not occur in nature. And it has cured young adults with ALL or with aggressive B-cell lymphomas. And it is being used in most tertiary and almost all quaternary cancer centers now. It is, it can be, sepsis in a jar. Um, The cytokine release storm is severe. 
it can actually be treated with an IL-6 antagonist called tocilizumab, which was used for rheumatoid arthritis. So there's some cool crossover. So you have to be excited about CAR-T if you're an oncologist or they'll take away your card. (laughs) Uh, The one I'm really excited about is what about CRISPR-Cas9 editing for something like sickle cell anemia? It's a single point defect. It was the first described genetic disease. Allogeneic transplant can cure sickle cell anemia, but allogeneic transplant just beats the heck out of people. So if you could edit sickle cell anemia, and I just heard a a podcast with Jennifer Doudna talking about the work they're doing with it, that would be a game changer. So that's what I hope is coming. That's what I'm looking forward to. Excellent. Super cool. So I think this is a good place to draw to a close now that we're talking about the future. Christian, can I ask you, what are the main take-home points you would have for our listeners about this checkpoint therapy? For sure. So the main point is just be aware that you're going to be seeing it in more and more patients. The indications, particularly in solid tumors, are growing. And so I think we're used to the cutting edge, the nibs and the mabs happening in heme malignancy first. That's probably true because the biopsy is easy. You just draw blood. The solid tumors now are getting a renaissance. And so patients with bladder cancer, with lung cancer, with breast cancer, with colon, you will see these medicines. If you think about the fact that the treatment and the side effects are just two sides of the same coin, if they are immune treatments, then autoimmunity as a side effect makes all the sense in the world. And then we can just go down through the characterization that you said. There's endocrine, rheumatologic, and then star dot itis for everything else. Great. Excellent. And anything that you'd like to plug while we have you here? I would like to plug the steel MS-462 chainsaw that I refer to <laughs> as Rachel the Fourth. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> Strong. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com, and while you're there, sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We are committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our writer, producer, and co-host for this episode, Nora Toronto, and to our whole team. Beth Garbatelli is our executive producer, with production and editing support from the team at Podpaste. Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Tima Karganoff maintains our website. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And Chris the Chimenchu has been our audio engineer today. Until next time, I've been Dr. Molly Hoytlein. I've been Dr. Nora Toronto. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.